As we transition from worshiping through the singing of music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I want to turn your attention to our passage today, which is back in the book of James. And so we'll be in James chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 18 together this morning. In just a moment, I'll read that. And you can follow along in your copy of God's word if you have it. This will be on the screen behind me as well and in the uh, bulletin that you hopefully got on your way in the door. But as I read this, I, I wanna encourage you to look for a theme. So there is one common theme in all of these verses. In fact, there is one word that you'll see seven times in these six verses. And so as we read it together, I want you to look for that word. You can circle it in your Bible or in your message map and, uh, and see if you can find out what it is. James chapter five, Verse 13 says this, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. All right, did you catch the word, the theme here? Hopefully you did. And it is prayer. The big idea that James wants us to walk away with after reading this passage is the powerful effects of prayer in our lives as we are transformed to look like Jesus, but also the powerful effect that the prayer of believers has on the world around us. If we're not praying people, it is likely because we've misunderstood what prayer is. You see, we've seen throughout the book that James is incredibly theological, but intensely practical. And so if we're not practically praying, it is likely that we have misunderstood theologically what prayer is, that we failed to understand the power of prayer. Or it might be that you've just lost faith in it. If you're being honest with yourself, you would acknowledge that you're not really sure your prayers make a difference. In the fourth century, there's a great pastor, theologian, John of Antioch, and he described prayer in this way. He said that prayer had subdued the strength of fire, bridled the rage of lions, hushed the anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled the demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. 
The beautiful thing about these words is that none of these descriptions are hyperbole or overstatements. These are all literal things that you can read were accomplished by prayer throughout Scripture. Truthful statements to illustrate that the prayer of believers does not have a ceiling. There is nothing that cannot be accomplished through the power of prayer in the life of God's people. So what we're gonna do this morning is we'll just walk through these verses, James 5, 13 through 18. We'll go verse by verse. We'll look at each one. And and as we do that, depending on how your brain works, I wanna encourage you to see that Each of these verses is its own individual tree. However, these verses together make up a forest, right? So I want you to think of this whole chunk of scripture, 13 through 18, as one big forest. And each verse is a tree. And the reason that I say that is because there are some interpretive issues in this text. We're gonna gonna zoom in on a few verses and zoom in even on a few words that could mean this or could mean that. And I don't wanna shy away from those issues. However, I also don't want you to lose the heart of the passage. I don't want you to lose the big idea by getting caught up on on an individual verse or an individual word. And so if you will, I'm just gonna ask that, that as we look at the big picture, but then also as we zoom in, that you don't lose the forest for the trees that you don't lose, that the main goal of this passage here is that James would have us walk out understanding the power of prayer in the life of God's people. The passage begins with an encouragement that in all circumstances, we ought to be a praying people. If you look at verse 13, he begins by saying, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. The word suffering here is meant to be an all-inclusive word. It could be physical suffering. It could be emotional suffering. It could be relational suffering. It could be mental suffering. It could be a combination of all of the above. It's a wide net. Are you suffering? Pray. Oftentimes when I'm suffering, I seek out a lot of remedies of which prayer is often the last. Do you do that? Sometimes when we're suffering, we throw money at the source of suffering. Sometimes when we're suffering, we throw other resources. I think sometimes we just avoid suffering at all costs. We just don't want to go near it. We, we completely avoid it. We skirt around anything that might cause suffering or discomfort. Or that's, that, that conversation could create suffering. I'm just not going to have it. That situation might cause suffering. I'm just not going to walk into it. Of course, James here is not implying that prayer in suffering and practical remedies to get out of suffering are mutually exclusive. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that we can't both pray and take medicine when we're suffering physically. He's just saying that, saying that there is an order of importance there. And truthfully, when I'm suffering, sometimes prayer is the last resort rather than the first in the midst of suffering. We should be a praying people. 
You'll remember earlier in the book of James, he's writing to Christians who had endured quite a lot of suffering, right? We saw in chapter one, James immediately says, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. Later in chapter five, we saw James addressing Christians who were suffering under the hand of crooked crooked farmers who had enlisted them for work and then not paid them for their work. And we see these farmers who are getting rich and eating abundantly while these Christians are suffering and hungry. And James says, endure, because sometimes life was hard for them and sometimes life is hard for us. But I want you to hear that the biblical prayer during suffering is not to just remove suffering, but it's that we might be faithful in the midst of suffering. See, to persevere, to grow into spiritual maturity. Our prayer during suffering is not, God, take it away so I never have to suffer, but it's, God, help me be faithful and obedient in this season of suffering. We should have a felt need, a dependence on the Holy Spirit in hard seasons, in all seasons, but especially in hard seasons. Holy Spirit, help me be faithful here. This is a tough situation. I'm in a lot of discomfort. Help me be faithful here. Our goal in praying through suffering should be righteousness, not comfort. Pray to be righteous. Pray for the Spirit to help you walk faithfully. But he also wants us to pray when we're not suffering. James continues... Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Singing praises is a form of praying to God and being thankful for all that he has done, but most importantly, all that he is. Earlier in James, again, 117, we saw every good and perfect gift is from where? It's from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Praying in cheerfulness is recognizing that all good things emanate from the character of God. Giving him thanks for those things. I've heard it said many times that the the measure of a healthy prayer life is not how much you pray when things are all bad, but how much do you pray when things are going really well? And if you'll step back and say, honestly, I, I don't know why I would pray when things are going well, right? I mean, praying is to get things from God, and if I have everything that I need, what do I need to pray about when things are going well? And what that does is it points out a theological error that we're practically living out. That means we think prayer is a transactional tool rather than a relational outlet. We often think that prayer is a transactional tool rather than a relational outlet. And so when James says, hey, pray when things are good, Pray when life is great. Pray when you're cheerful. He's reminding us the most important thing about being a Christian is relationship with God himself. And the most important part of prayer is not what we get from God, but that we get God. When you got the job, when you won the prize, when something great happens, what do we love to do? We love to call someone close to us and share the news. We're expecting another kid. We're expecting a grandkid. I couldn't wait to tell everybody because when we have good things come into our life, we like to share them. In cheerfulness, pray to God. 
It aligns our will with his will. As, as somebody who is results-driven and image-focused, so my counselor tells me, <clears throat> and that I see in my own life, I sometimes forget that, that God really does care about my attitude and my heart and what's going on on the inside. Uh, sometimes I think if I can just do the things I'm supposed to do and behave the way I'm supposed to behave, that God doesn't care much about what's going on here, right? If I can just not say the thing that I'm thinking, sometimes I think it's okay that I'm thinking it as long as I don't say it. If I can just treat that person with kindness on the outside, but hold resentment and bitter towards them on the inside, then I'm good. And James' comment here on praying in cheerfulness and praying in suffering, it reminds me that God cares about what's going on inside of our hearts, why we pray. It aligns our hearts with his. And it reminds me that God is committed and capable of transforming something broken inside of me to something beautiful. He does that through prayer. Pray in suffering, he says. Pray in joy, but also pray in sickness. Look at verses 14 through 15 here. It says this, is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James is reminding us again that the power of prayer is so effective that it can and will heal those who are sick. But there's a lot to consider in these verses. I've got a lot of questions. When I read this, I had a list of questions. And so, so we'll settle here for just a minute. I, I want to zoom in on the trees here, right? And, and deal with these hard questions, specifically three of them. The first is this. What does James mean here by sick? What does he mean here when he says, is anyone among you sick? The reason that this is important is because the way that we read that has a big impact on how we interpret and apply the rest of this passage. Most scholars agree that the word sick here, used by James, is intended to mean physical sickness. Your body is ill. Something's wrong. However, the literal translation means to be weak, which has opened the doors to some debate here that James might be spiritually referring to weakness rather than physical sickness. The interpretation allows for the idea that is anyone spiritually sick? Is anyone spiritually struggling? That would mean that the prayer of faith will save the sick person, which is verse 15, could mean it will save the sick person spiritually. It will restore their spirit. So if physical sick in verse 14 means that, then physically healed in verse 15 must mean that. However, if we can say in verse 14 that the person's not physically sick, but spiritually sick, then in verse 15, we can say that they will be spiritually healed. However, it's been very, very hard for me to make allowances or be convinced that when James says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? That he means anything other than physically sick. 
Which means in verse 15, it's hard for me to imagine that when it says the prayer of faith will save the sick person, that means anything other than it will physically heal the sick person. Douglas Moo, commentator, pastor, says it this way. I think it is very unlikely that the word sick refers to spiritual weakness. The word refers to physical weakness or illness in the majority of the New Testament occurrences. More importantly, it universally has this meaning in the New Testament material that has exercised the greatest influence on James's vocabulary and theology, the Jesus tradition. In the Gospels, astheneo, that's that word for sick there, always denotes physical illness. So his point here is that the literature that would have most influenced James would have been the Gospels. And in those Gospels, this word astheneo, sick, is used 13 times. And every single time it's used, it means physical sickness. That same word is also used twice in Philippians, once in 2 Timothy, and again in Hebrews. And it always means physical sickness. Therefore, I think it is very likely that when James says, is anyone sick? What he means is, is anyone physically sick? Furthermore, that word saved in verse 15 most frequently denotes the restoration of those who are ill when it is used everywhere else in the New Testament. I know that was likely way more than what you want. So I'm sorry, you can wake up again if you zoned out on me for that. But the point here is that James is talking about physical illness. And mostly, I believe he's talking about physical healing. So someone is physically sick. What should they do? Look at the text again. Not just pray, but call the elders to pray. Right? The elders here were leaders in the church. They were appointed by the church to lead the church. This would have been men who fit the description of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where we see the qualifications of elders. And so if someone is sick, he should call the elders to pray for them. Notice the burden of initiation here is on the sick party. I think that's important for two reasons. It's because in order for someone who is sick to call the elders for prayer, it requires both humility, but also relationship, right? There would be some sense of relationship to the pastors whom they're calling for prayer. I think humility and relationship are both important there. So someone's sick, they call the elders, the elders come, pray over them. You get this picture of someone lying down in a bed where they can't get up. They're too weak to come to the church. And the elders go and they pray over this person. And what does it say the elders are to do? It says to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Which leads us to our second question is, what's the deal with this oil? What is the significance of the oil? There's, there's three primary views that I'm gonna give you. I think two are, are viable, okay? Of the three, the first one is this. It's that this oil is sacramental, okay? St. Augustine, he defined a sacrament as this, a visible sign of an invisible grace. 
The Protestant church has two sacraments. Uh, by the way, we are Baptist, and Baptists fall underneath the Protestant umbrella. And so there are two sacraments, commonly called ordinances. Both are initiated and clearly commanded by Jesus in Scripture. So those two sacraments or ordinances that we practice here are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are visible signs that we see, hear, and do that are signs of an invisible grace. However, the the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments, not just two. And of those seven, there's one that's called extreme unction. If you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church or you know people, maybe you're familiar with this. But this extreme unction, it was a sacrament in which they would come and they would put oil on the sick person. And that oil in, in preparation of them dying was meant to anoint and remove the remnants of any sin, preparing their soul for heaven. In my opinion, this is the option we can throw out. Because we don't believe that, that any pastor has the ability to wash away the remnants of sin. We don't believe that oil has the ability to wash away the remnants of sin. That can only be done by confession to Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins, imputed righteousness by Jesus. So, so I, I believe that we can throw this one out also because this passage, it's not about preparation for death. It's about healing, And so this extreme unction often done in preparation for death, for cleansing the soul for death, doesn't fit. So this leaves us with two more options. These two, I believe, are viable, whichever side you fall into. The the, the first of the two is this. It's that this oil is meant to be medicinal, right? So everyone that sells and uses essential oils can say amen, right? I told you, I told you, honey, this is why. It was meant to be medicinal, right? The, the, the ancient usage of oil was to heal skin conditions and medical conditions. And, and we see uh, proof of this in the New Testament in Luke 10, 34, right? The story of the Good Samaritan. We see the Good Samaritan finds the man who's been beaten and left on the side of the road. It says this, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The wine here would have been antiseptic and the oil would have been for practical metal healing. Many would say that this shows that prayer, as I said before, it doesn't negate medical practices. There's value in both. That's so true. Here's the other option, the third. The third interpretation is that the oil is not meant to be used as a sacrament, as the Roman Catholic Church would say, nor is it meant to be medicinal, but it is symbolic. It is symbolizing being consecrated or set apart to receive special attention from God in prayer. We see this in the Old Testament, Exodus 28. God commands Moses that Aaron and his sons anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. It's this idea of the, the... The sons of Aaron, the Levites, are set apart. They're symbolically set apart and consecrated to serve God. We also see this language in quite a few New Testament passages, Luke 4, 18, Acts 4, 2 Corinthians 1, and and then later in Hebrews as well. But this third option is the one that I I lean to, is that this oil is symbolic. Um, And if you want to know 
why, then you can email me, but we don't have time to, to do that this morning. So that's what I think about the oil. But now let's zoom out, okay? I wanna, I wanna get out of the tree. Let's zoom out and look at the forest again. Back to the heart. Because the important thing for you to know, it's not that important how you view the oil. Because the significance of the passage is that prayer is powerful. That prayer is effective. James's point here is that the prayer of elders can and will heal sick people. That the prayer of believers can and will affect the world. Don't miss that. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Prayer in suffering is powerful. Prayer in cheerfulness is powerful. The church coming together and praying over and for the sick is powerful. We see in verse 16 that praying together with one another is powerful. But we're not going to get that far today. We're not going to get to verse 16. Because there's one more big question in verse 15 that we need to deal with. Look at what it says. James 5, 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. And the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins. He will be forgiven. I'll confess to you guys, I've been very mad at James all week. Because I thought, James, why didn't you just say the prayer of faith might save the sick person? The prayer of faith could save the sick person. He says the prayer of faith will save the sick person. So what do we do with that? few options, right? The question is this, how do we deal with this language of certainty that James is giving us? I mentioned earlier that some believe that word for sick, astheneo, it's a reference to spiritual sickness, which means if that's spiritual sickness, then we could say in verse 15 that the prayer of faith will save the sick person, that it'll simply restore their spirit. It will bring healing. Many people would say, the person who's sick could die, but, but then they're made full in heaven. Then they're healed. And that's what James is talking about here. However, as I mentioned before, I just, I can't believe that that word sick means anything other than physically ill. Trust me, I tried all week. I mean, I can get this sermon done a lot quicker. I just don't believe that's what he means here. Which means when it says that they will be saved in verse 15, I take that to mean they will be physically healed. They will be physically saved. So we we can't deal with it that way. At least I can't with integrity before you. So the other way of dealing with this is that some would believe the prayer of faith to be a very specific type of prayer. So I don't mean a chant or an incantation, but what I mean is that they believe the prayer of faith to be a specific spirit-given conviction that the Lord will indeed heal the person. Kent Hughes says it this way. We are truly able to pray the prayer of faith only when we are sure it is God's will. In other words, the prayer of faith is this very specific prayer gifted by the Holy Spirit to us in which we have this overwhelming conviction of confidence that our prayers will be used by God to heal. Here's my issue with that. And I'll be tender here, hear my heart, that there are many dear and mature Christians that I know 
many in this church that I know that have fervently and faithfully, confidently prayed for someone to be healed and they were not. We have to deal with that. When I was on staff at First Baptist Fairhope in Fairhope, Alabama, there was a young woman shortly after I got there who got a cancer diagnosis. And the diagnosis seemed pretty dire. It it was a pretty aggressive form. It had spread. And they were not giving her a lot of time or much chance of survival. And so that church rallied. I mean, it rallied. They prayed and prayed and prayed for hours, confidently, faithfully knowing no way God will take this young woman from us. And we prayed and we prayed. In fact, one day, all of the, uh, the pastors went to the hospital to anoint her with oil, to symbolically, I believe, set her apart, to give her special attention from God in our prayers. And on the way up to the room, I said, guys, I can't go in there. I'll be honest with you. I don't know that my faith is where yours is right now. And I don't want to mess this up. I'm going to wait in the car. And they went in without me and they prayed because they had such confidence she will be healed. There's just no way. And they prayed and they prayed. And a few months later, Nicole died. And she left two just beautiful little girls behind to navigate life without a mom and a husband to care for these two girls. And she passed. And I just can't believe that that is because there was ever a a lack of faith or confidence or full conviction that she would be healed. Because if we're to believe that the prayer of faith will heal, then the healing must be dependent on the faith of the prayer. I can't believe that, that God's sovereign plan over sickness is dependent on the faith of our prayers. I don't think that the prayer of faith can be a specific, full conviction type of prayer. Now, lest you think that my theology is informed by my emotional baggage or experience, I want to give you some biblical support for this. Mark chapter 9. We see a father bring his sick son to Jesus. He brings him to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. To which Jesus responds, if you can? (laughs) Right, like, I'm Jesus. What do you mean, if I can do anything? Everything is possible for the one who believes, Jesus says. We think if if only you believe strong enough, if, if only you have enough faith, enough can happen. Anything is possible. But but look what the Father says. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. The father says, I I believe, but not perfectly. I have faith, but it's imperfect faith. The boy was healed. The prayer of faith simply cannot mean that we have perfect faith. 
Jesus himself has an unanswered request. You'll remember that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed before the crucifixion, before he would be arrested, tortured, and killed. Luke 22, we see Jesus say, Father, if you will, take this cup from me. Now, Jesus had perfect faith. We know that. Yet his prayer, it was unanswered. So I don't think James is meaning that the prayer of faith here to be a specific type of prayer that carries a specific spirit-given conviction and confidence that that person will be healed. But the question remains, what does James mean here then, right? Uh, I want you to flip over to John 14 if you have your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. I think this is a helpful passage that sheds light on this. John 14, 12 through 14 says this. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I point your attention to this passage because I think we can take James 5, where he's saying the sick person will be healed, and we can take John 14, where Jesus says, ask anything and I'll do it. And we can put those together and answer this question. Tim Keller points out this about these passages. They're intended to demonstrate the power of prayer. But they were never intended to tell us everything about prayer. We could do an entire sermon on unanswered prayers. We could share a lot of stories on unanswered prayers. Why was Jesus' request not accepted? Faith was perfect. It's not because he didn't ask properly. It's not because his motives were imperfect. His knowledge was imperfect. And we don't have time to do all of the Christology behind that, but Jesus on earth was limited in his knowledge. So if James 5 meant that they were always healed and John 14 meant that you get anything you ask for, with our knowledge, I wouldn't trust a God who always answered everything with no exceptions from a people with limited knowledge. Let me show you this. Have you, have you ever sincerely wanted something that you honestly thought was good for you, you honestly thought it was good for other people, only to find out later, had you gotten that, it would have been harmful or disastrous? All right, just take a moment and think about if every prayer you have ever prayed, if it were answered. Do you see how that might be damaging to us? Because even with good intentions, sometimes we pray things that shouldn't be answered. God knows. His plan is to work all things for the good of those who love him. It is loving that God does not always answer our prayers with yes. And I want to be sensitive here because this is hard. But it is loving that God does not always heal. I know it doesn't feel that way. In fact, one of my best friends, his father passed away just yesterday, and 
he's mourning. It's not always what we want. It's loving that God doesn't always answer. And you might say, well, well, Stephen, this whole thing is about the power and the effectiveness of prayer. And now you're telling me that God doesn't always answer my prayers. That kind of diminishes my desire to pray, right? If God's going to do what he wants to do, why do we pray? You're not making your point here. And I want you to hear this, that God not always saying yes because he knows what we don't know. It doesn't diminish our prayers. It gives us freedom and confidence in our prayers. You know, my, my daughter asks me for candy and toys and stuff all the time. And guess what? I don't always say yes, but that doesn't prevent her from asking. In fact, it gives her freedom and confidence to ask because she knows that if she were to ask me for something that would be damaging to her, I would protectively and lovingly deny her request. And so she can ask with freedom and so we can pray with freedom. And God uses those prayers, both in our lives, but in the world around us. But he does so in a way that protects us from what we don't know. Pray. James 5, 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. There's a lot, there's a lot in this passage we didn't get to. A lot about sin and sickness and confession and what that looks like. And I promise we'll hit it next time I get to preach on James. But again, don't miss the forest for the trees. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. And I think James knew that we would be tempted to read that and go, well, I'm not that righteous. I mean, God probably does listen to pastor's prayers, but not mine. Which is exactly why he, he points to Elijah. He says, look at Elijah. He was a human just like your humans. And God used his prayers in a magnificent way to, to change nations. Because as children of God, we are positionally righteous. When God sees us who have confessed our sins and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. We are positionally righteous. That's imputed righteousness. And so James is saying, listen, you believers, you righteous people, your prayers are powerful. Pray. The God of the universe that knows all and can do more in five seconds than any of us could do in five years. He's listening to you, and not only listening, but he loves you. And he is a good father that loves to give good gifts to his children. And so your prayers matter. And if we believe that theologically, we will pray practically in suffering, in cheerfulness, and in sickness. Let's do that together.